Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep Goblin Market, a poem by Christina Rossetti, first published in 1862. Although I think it was written in 1859. Mm-hmm. The reason I mention that is that uh, Christina was born in 1830, so um, she's 39 years old. This is a poem um, about sexual um, appetite and sexual restraint. And uh, the older you make her at the time (laughs) that we think of her composing it, the more we may think of it as autobiographical. Mm. She's 29 when she writes it, which is, you know, getting on there if you assume she's truly been uh, uh, abstinent. Mm. I think the most interesting thing I found out about uh, what she was doing at that time in her life was, and I think it's probably the most insightful, for me anyways, into this poem, is that she began work in a woman's prison. And I I see this as a poem of of redemption, um, of redeeming uh, sin, and uh, sort of women redeeming their own sin, rather than having it somehow avenged by men or something like that. Indeed. I think the, the feminist aspects of this uh, poem are very strong. So let's, let's, let's just make sure that we're reading a poem that has the same, uh, plot. Mm -hmm. It is a poem. It is told in a meter and rhyme that is not fixed that is the uh, the number of feet per line is the same, but the number of syllables per line varies because the the length of each foot varies. And the rhyme scheme, though compelling, is not completely regular. Uh, the variation of the line length and the rhyme scheme allows Rossetti to highlight and subdue different aspects of the emotional journey. The emotional journey begins with uh, a general statement that maidens can hear goblins crying, meaning not sobbing, but selling, uh, come buy our orchard fruits. So these are artificially raised fruits that they want to sell. And it turns out that we've got here two sisters, Laura and Lizzie, who hear this cry all the time, morning and evening, which are times of transition. Mm. They hear this cry. Uh, Laura hearkens to it and indeed tries to hear it very much. Uh, Lizzie uh, averts her eyes. Uh, She plugs her ears at one point. She doesn't want to be drawn away by this uh, crying of the fruits. I will remind us that fruits are the result of the sexual reproduction of plants. And they contain within them seeds, which could lead to more plants. Lizzie, in fact, uh, excuse me, Laura, tries to buy the fruits. She's told, but she has no money. Uh, The goblins don't mind. The goblins uh, say, well, you've got something golden. And so they'll take a lock of her hair. They take a lock of her hair and she feasts greedily on the various fruits given her. At that point, 
when she gets home, Lizzie has not waited around for this. Um, she is glorying in the experience, but thereafter she never is able to hear the, uh, the goblin men crying for the sale of their fruits. And over time she becomes old and, and, and anxious. Uh, she's decaying with her longing so much so that her sister Lizzie, who loves her very much, decides that she will get some more fruit for her. But she arms herself with a silver penny, goes out and, uh, throws the silver penny to the goblin men. She can still hear them, of course, perfectly well, uh, presumably because she's still a maiden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she says, here, fill up my apron with your fruits. Uh, couldn't be more sexual. Uh, they won't do it. Um, they want her. They don't want her money. And she won't part with the money. So they, they, it's almost like uh, they, they beat her, they pinch her, they poke her. It's almost as if it were a rape. Mm-hmm. They are unsuccessful in uh, getting her to agree to give them some part of herself for the fruit. She goes back home, and I guess she has these bruises on her. She's got her own sort of sap, her bleeding, her, her wounds. And she gets into bed with her sister and says, you know, suck me, mm. kiss me, eat me. And Laura does. And the next morning she is revived. Uh, they have remembered Lizzie and, uh, and Laura, the story of Jenny who had previously bought from the goblin men and, uh, had died and no, no grass would grow on her grave. Uh, but once they are revived, they go about their lives. And in what feels a little bit like a coda, we learn that, uh, years later, Lizzie and Laura both are mothers and they both love their children and they tell them the story of the goblin men. Uh, to go back then to your original point, Jesse, in this story, there are only maidens or would be maidens and goblin men. And the goblin men are all chimerical. There's a rat-faced one. There's one with a whisking tail. There's a wombat man. I mean, they're all combination men and beasts. Um, These unnatural goblins are the ones who want to gobble the girls. The girl who resists brings a kind of virtue that is itself redemptive. It's as if she were the Virgin Mary. She's an intercessor who manages to get Laura back on track. She restores Laura to a state of sinlessness. Rossetti was, in fact, unlike um, the rest of her quite famous artistic family, um, she was quite religious. And uh, as much as uh, it is clearly important that she was trying to personally support the lives of incarcerated women, it may be that even before she chose that as an activity, she committed herself to a a life of Christ, as she would understand it. Mm-hmm. And and this is a story of uh, of Mariolatry in that sense. It's it's all the females are either good or tempted but redeemable, and all the men are bad. When Laura and Lizzie become mothers, they don't seem to have husbands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, w- it, 
it's it's very curious. I mean, that she was religious uh, seems to have baggage. Um, you know, what what does that mean um, for a woman in the 19th century? What does that mean? Um, not sure. But what I do know is what we see in the poem, you could see it not being accepted by many churches uh, or, or congregations anyways. People seeing, I mean, what is explicitly on the page, lesbianism, incest, um, uh, very, I mean, the, uh, the flesh of the fruit is literally sucked in many, many of the scenes in this. Um, and yet, uh, it, one of the things that I think was interesting is that people apparently um, objected to the idea that this was for children, that this is a, a children's poem. And obviously it's, it's appropriate for us, we're adults, but she apparently, Rossetti apparently thought that this was wholly appropriate for children and I- indeed even meant for children. And... I kind of completely agree with her. I, I think um, it, it it is full of like incredibly sexual imagery that maybe would be innocently heard by young ears. Um, but the but the moral of the story is all about the virtue of girls rather than the g- virtue of women as adults, but the virtue of of unmarried girls and how women or at least sisters have to stick together i see a like the question of incest to me in this in this poem you know that they're called sisters but then i think of the uh all the goblin although everyone is different right of a different species of a different uh, what some are foul and some are beasts and some uh, I, I don't I don't know if there's any fish, but there's every variety as just as there's every variety of fruit for sale. There's every variety of animal, perhaps, and they're it's like they're brothers. So if we can get past the incest aspect, um, it seems very pro uh, lesbian relationships at least pre-marriage, which I don't know if that's intended, but it seems to be the effect. And that's, it's shocking. It's a shocking poem. For a 19th century poem by a Christian lady, very shocking. Um, I suppose, uh, you know, I don't know what the norms are. I know that it was quite usual for schoolboys, uh, especially in what in America we call private schools, but in England they call public schools. It was quite usual for schoolboys to have homosexual relations. Um, and then when they grew up to be men, um, they stopped. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also quite usual in those cold days before central heating <clears throat> for siblings to share beds. Uh, it was not at all uncommon for people to kiss each other. Um, I kiss my son and daughter, and I don't think of that as incestuous. Sure. What I don't do is express a, a, a desperate appetite. Come mm. kiss me, come kiss me, come kiss me. And the question that I, I see here is whether Lizzie is saying, come kiss me, come kiss me, 
Um, because she has an incestuous relationship, or let us at least say, uh, even if it is uh, a physical relationship, whether or not she has a, a relationship that's aiming in what would be considered in the 19th century an unnatural direction, or she is just so eager to have Laura saved by being able to get the fruit, the sap that Lizzie has brought back she had to do it in her body because mm-hmm. she, if she had given herself to the goblin men, then she would no longer have it either. Uh, so to to let her have that virtue, it sounds sort of uh, crazy. And yet the word forbidden fruit, the phrase forbidden fruit occurs in the poem. Yep. And forbidden fruit has a fascinating uh, recurrence in the Bible. Uh the first forbidden fruit is uh, is meat. Uh, but because Abel is a shepherd and makes sacrifice of meat and God feels, you know, smells the, the, the meat and Abel's sacrifice found uh, uh, goodness in his eyes, God's eyes, Cain is jealous of his brother and kills him. Now, Cain, having killed him, is marked, but we need to remember that that mark is to protect him against people who otherwise would want to kill him because he killed Abel and committed the first murder. In other words, forbidden fruit yields greater power. This happened earlier when Adam and Eve ate the apple, and in fact, lest they reach forth their hand and eat also of the tree of life and become as one of us, therefore they are cast out of the garden. So yes, it's true that eating the forbidden fruit brought mortality, but it brought great power. In every instance, eating forbidden fruit gives great power. The first instance is the apple. The next instance is meat. The culminating instance is... um, Jesus, Mm. who says, this is my body, eat of it. This is my blood, drink of it. Now, if you read that literally, it's cannibalism. Mm -hmm. But in the religious, in the Christian religious context, it is redemption. It's the doing away of sins. It is the center of the mass. It is what ultimately, if one continues to lead a life modeling that of Jesus, will lead to eternal life. So I'm not disagreeing that to an audience in the 21st century, the vivid description of Lizzie and Laura kissing, well, actually Laura kissing and uh, and biting and nipping and sucking uh, Lizzie, once Lizzie has returned from her pummeling by the goblin men, sounds awfully incestuous. But I think in a Christian religious context, it may be a kind of incest that is of a piece with the cannibalism that underlies everybody's redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, um, the, I mean, that's the most explicit uh, lesbian sort of aspect, but uh, it, it's right at the beginning, too. I mean, you, you're saying, yeah, it wasn't uncommon for people in the old days to sleep in common beds and such. And I think that that's true. Um but it's still it's pretty um, it's pretty explicit uh, in the on page seven of the, our copy 
a stanza begins. This is uh, after Liz, uh, Laura's come back from from her feast, and they they lay to be- together in bed. Re- I'm going to read this section because it's it's astounding. Golden head by golden head, like two pigeons in one nest, folded in each other's wings, they lay down into their curtained bed, like two blossoms on one stem, like two flakes of fallen snow, of new fallen snow, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings. Moon and stars gazed in at them, wind sang them to Wind sang to them lullaby, lumbering owls forbore to fly, not a bat flapped to and fro round their rest. Um, it it could just be sweet, you know, um, but that description, like two wands of ivory tipped with gold for awful kings, it's a description of, of their bodies being white and their hair being uh, gold. And Absolutely, that's, that's interesting. But it's the follow-up line for awful kings, and it's like uh, this is a sort of an innocent, sweet, um, you know, sleeping together. Uh, but then with the follow-up, I'm sorry, I I'm not reading the word awful. It sounds to me as if you're reading the word awful as in, um, ooh, this is terrible, horrible stuff. Hmm. I, I'm reading the word awful as in full of awe. Exactly. That an awful king would be God, for example. Mm. But awful as, kings, as, as, right? As, well, yes, of course. And this is a fairy tale. I mean, we exactly. Don't have, we this don't is so fairy tale. Yeah, absolutely. One so, of the ways we know that it's a fairy tale is that all of the different fruits are in are in fruit. At the same time. Right. So we've got fall fruits like cranberries and spring fruits like plums all ready at the same time. This is a time out of time. The goblins are creatures of fairy tale. Laura and Lizzie are living in a fairy tale as children. And it is only later when they become mothers that they are no longer in a fairy tale, but they recall a fairy tale to educate their own children. I think the crucial difference that you're pointing to here between this and the fairy tales we're more used to is that those tales, which also have lots of sexuality involved, have the sexuality much more subtly and symbolically. Totally. The the scene where uh, it is so bound up with... Uh, the the Christian sort of imagery as well, um, where you, where you said she's like Mary, I'm thinking she's more like Christ, um, and it, it, there's something you know, Mary is the mother, Christ, and Christ is not exactly mom, right? He's something else. But I, I want to read that section where she's just come back covered in like she's she's basically been a juicer for these <laughs> these men they've soaked her body uh, from head to toe in in pummeling her uh, they didn't just physically attach her and pinch her and such they also emotionally you know cajoled her bullied her coaxed her so she's not just been uh, w- one of the things they say she was um, she was oh yeah I'm gonna read this section it says uh, one one called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil, right? 
so they're they're trying to say you're you're too, you think you're better than us sort of thing right so th- they jostle her they they physically abuse her but they also uh, mentally try to cajole her into essentially having sex with them um i but agree she stands proud and there's a, a the repeated not metaphor but uh simile throughout um is it's striking right uh, listen to this white and golden lizzie stood like a lily in a flood right white a white flower um being poured over by a a, a lot of water like a rock of blue vein stone lashed by tides obstreperously like a beacon left alone in a hoary roaring sea sending up a golden fire like a fruit crowned orange tree white with blossoms honey sweet sore beset by wasp and bee like a royal virgin town topped with gilded dome and spire close beleaguered by a fleet mad to tug her standard down this um idea of her action being a refusal um, to survive the onslaught, right? She she pays this very interesting relationship. She pays for uh, the fruit just as her sister did with with gold or silver, but the difference is is hers is a coin, and she sheds no tear. So that juice that's all over her body when she comes back to her sister, it isn't sweet, right? Uh, and that, I think, is there's. it's not just the payment. It's also the, you know, in cutting her hair, Laura is doing something wrong. And I want to read this section where she's just returned. She cried, Laura, up the garden, did you miss me? Come and kiss me. Never mind my bruises. Hug me, kiss me, suck my juices. Squeezed from goblin fruits for you. Goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me, drink me, love me, Laura. Make me, make much of me. For your sake I have braved the glen. And that's the strange glen where you find these goblins, right? We always meet them there. And had to do with goblin merchantmen. Laura started from her chair, flung her arms up in the air, clutched her hair. Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted from my sake, for my sake, the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden? And I, I, that's a key line for me. Um, then it goes on a little bit. Dropping like rain after a long, sultry drought, shaking with anguish, fear and pain, she kissed and kissed with a hungry mouth. Her lips began to scorch, that juice was wormwood to her tongue. She loathed the feast. Writhing as one possessed, she leaped and sung, rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast. Or breast. Um, and then she, she has the fire that was in her that was put out and turned her hair white and her hair thin. Um, comes back swift fire through her veins knocked at her heart met the smoldering fire there and overbore its lesser flame she gorged on bitterness without a name a fool to choose such a part of soul-consuming care sense failed in the mortal strife like the watchtower of a town 
which an earthquake shatters down, like a lightning-stricken mast, like a wind-uprooted tree, spun about like a foam-topped water spout. And then the next stanza, life out of death. And she wakes like from a dream. This is, uh, I was thinking very much about how, you know, uh, this is a very Eric poem. <laughs> it's a very Eric poem in a couple of ways, I think. Um, it's a it's about food, which I always, whenever I see food in any sort of context in fiction now, I always think of how Eric would interpret what's going on. <laughs> um, one of the things that I see that's very interesting is that the farm that Laura and Lizzie run, there's no fruit there. It's it's cows uh, for milking and chickens for eggs and pies, but there's no fruit in those pies, no forbidden fruit in those pies. And right. yet they don't eat of meat either. They're eating, yes, of, of milk and of maybe cheese and, uh, of course, uh, eggs, but they don't eat meat. And that also makes me think of this is kind of a garden, right? The Garden of Eden sort of thing. This is, uh, uh, yes, it's redemptive. It's redemptive. Uh, the, the eat me, drink me mm. is certainly um, Lizzie taking on the role of Jesus. Mm -hmm. The reason I made the uh, resonance with, I suggest a resonance with Mary as well is, and I use the term Mariolatry um, intentionally, there has been a time, there have been times in the evolution of Christianity when Mary as the intercessor and Mary as the virgin, you remember the, the notion of virgin birth is not confirmed by the church until the 19th century. Mm -hmm. The notion of virgin birth is not that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth, but that Mary herself was born virginally. That is, that, that she remains virgin throughout. That she herself is associated with that triune God. And there have been times when the worship of Mary as an intercessor, as a paraclete, <clears throat> has been so strong that there have been complaints that she's overshadowing her son. Mm -hmm. uh, the main um, symbols in medieval iconography for Mary are the white lily mm. and gold, the aureole around her head. As you were reading, I was thinking of the Merode altarpiece where we see the Annunciation scene and Lil Mary is holding a lily on her lap. She has a gold aureole indicating her saintliness and we have the gold light growing across the, uh, the extinguished uh, candle by which she is reading presumably the good book so that she can have the child within her, the purely virgin woman conceiving virginally a child who will born, be born while she is still a virgin. Um, and all of this, that is that child coming from that mother, they are redemptive. The line, a mortal, uh, a mortal conflict. Well, mortal is to die. And the pain that Jesus undergoes to redeem us, according to Orthodox Christianity is to die, is to die. And Lizzie 
is willing to be beaten by the goblin men so as to be enriched by that experience. And that enrichment is something that needs to be eaten and uh, and drunk by her sister. And that allows them to go on. And as you so wisely indicate, create a life which is as close to Eden as one could expect in a domestic, mercantile, 19th century world. Mm. And everything that they consume seems to be the uh, the product of female uh, of female life, mm-hmm. milk and eggs and, and so on. Men are not involved. Men are the source of conflict. It is men who do bad things. In this regard, uh, these are this is a story meant to caution young girls. Mm-hmm. And there is a parallel. This was written in 59 and you say published in 62, I think. Mm-hmm. In 1862 and 3, serially was published uh, Charles Kingsley's Water Babies, which is one of the most famous children's books of the Victorian period. And in Water Babies, a chimney sweep named Tom eventually winds up in a fairy tale world where he has to die into goodness and redeem everybody and comes back from it at the end. But the reason he gets the, the way to get into that is that because he is only a chimney sweep, um, he's being abused economically and uh, he's forced by his owner master um, to ch- sweep a particular chimney. And he goes across in the between the walls in this wealthy house and comes tumbling down a different chimney into the bedroom of a beautiful young girl. And uh, everyone sees this as an attempted rape. Mm. He flees them and winds up falling into a river. And in that river, he either drowns or doesn't. Uh, But at the end of all of these adventures in a fairy tale-ish world, he is redeemed and is able to uh, have a sense of chaste, but nonetheless real love with the girl he presumably was thought to have raped, but wouldn't because Tom is in fact a noble. Tom's in The Water Babies by Kingsley, which began to be published in 1862, is in many ways a male version, a low-class male version version of a middle-class female version of the same story. Hmm. And so I point this out because Charles Kingsley was in fact an Anglican priest. (laughs) So... Having this sexuality and having this notion that we are going to teach children to restrain themselves because they will ultimately become sinless if they can involve themselves only in chaste marital relations. Um, This seems to be a message that the Victorians are pushing. I think you are right in agreeing with Christina Rossetti. Uh, this much more explicit fairy tale that is explicit sexually um, than we are used to seeing only 20 years earlier when um, or 30, I guess, maybe 40 years earlier when um, the Grimm brothers are sweeping uh, in, in English translation. Uh, this is much more explicit sexually, uh, but I think it is, in fact, equally understood as genuinely meant for children. Mm-hmm. But there's always more to say. 